2 Corinthians 2, 12 through 17. On the back of your bulletins is an outline. You see Paul's discouragement in 12 and 13 and Paul's encouragement in 14 through 17. We will pray and read the word of the Lord. Father, we come before you today thinking of the redeeming blood. Father, thinking of our dear brother who uh, was discouraged. And Father, how you encouraged. Father, we who are called by your name fight many of the same battles the Apostle Paul. And yet you are faithful and you have helped us and you have carried us and you have been faithful when we were faithless. Father, give us eyes to see. Father, give us ears to hear that we may walk in a manner worthy of this precious and privileged calling to be children of the Most High God. Thank you, Lord, for our salvation. And thank you, Father, for the ministry of each and every one of us as we press on the upward calling of Christ. Amen. Verse 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord... I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking leave of them. I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one an aroma of death to death, to other, aroma of life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We had to look at this, and we spent the last couple of weeks looking at What was Paul dealing with? Where was his heart? And we've seen that in verses 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul, a man of the gospel, a man who understood that he was not ashamed of the gospel, understanding that the gospel was the power of salvation, a man who had a zeal for the things of God, who had a zeal and a passion that overwhelmed him for the body of Christ, the church. And yet what was going on in the church in Corinth and what had gone on in Ephesus was troubling to him. It was heartbreaking to him to the point that a door was opened to him in the Lord. If you go back to the letter to Revelations, the church in Philadelphia, when you will find that with God opens it, no one closes it. If God closes it, no one opens it. The Apostle Paul knew this extraordinarily well. And yet here was a door opened in Troas and he was so depressed, he was so discouraged, he was so troubled in his spirit that he took leave of them. The them there would be the church. 
He had planted a church. We find later in the book of Acts that there was a church in Troas. There wasn't before Paul had visited him the first time. And so there was fruit being bore by the preaching of the gospel in Troas. But yet the pastor's heart was not right, was not at peace, was not comforted in Troas. And he went on to Macedonia trying to head off Titus to see how the church in Corinth had responded. This is a very troubling issue for the Apostle Paul. When God opens the door, the Apostle Paul walked through boldly. He did not want to come back to Corinth, remember, because he was in Ephesus. Why? For a great door had been opened for ministry in Ephesus, and yet he said there were many adversaries. He didn't say there was any adversaries in Troas. But yet his heart was so overwhelmed with grief of what was going on in Corinth that he had written 1 Corinthians and he had written another letter called the Severe Letter and he had sent Titus to deliver this and he was wanting to know how they had responded. They had perverted uh, the sanctity of marriage. They had perverted uh, the Lord's table. They had perverted spiritual gifts. And other than that, they were doing pretty good. Side order, suing each other's and divisions and schisms. They almost sound baptistic. And he was heartbroken over what was happening. Okay? And then an amazing thing happens. Between verse 13 and 14. This discouragement overwhelming discouragement. Now you think about how discouraged would you have to be not to share the gospel in an open door? You ever thought about that? How heartbroken must you have to be to say, here's an open door, I don't feel like it. And you know, some of you will say, well, you know, I've, I've been that way before. Well, okay, how about Paul? Paul just never seemed gun-shy to me. I mean, he confronted Peter when Peter played favors between the Gentiles and the Jews. That doesn't sound like a gun-shy man. He was extraordinarily sensitive when the Spirit of God was stopping him and when he had adversaries from the demonic realm were trying to stop him. He knew the difference. And yet here was a door open and he, not having rest in his spirit, took leave of them. See, the Apostle Paul understood this. He was not finished. He knew that the Lord was not done with him. You know what? He could have turned very easily and gone the wrong way and said, you know what? This is ridiculous. Why would I keep pouring myself into these people who could care less and want to be divided and are more self-centered than they will ever be Christ-centered? As one of his last letters that he writes, he says, I have no one like Timothy because all others are what? Looking out for themselves. That doesn't sound like the church today, does it? I'm glad we've outgrown that. He could have gone the wrong way. He could have let the discouragement or the lack of rest in his spirit be his swan song. I'm done. I've done my part. I started a church in Antioch. I started a church in 
Philippi. I started a church at Thessalonica. We did good work in Berea. We sowed the seed in Athens. We did okay in Corinth. And Ephesus was all right. And even Troas. You know what? I think it's time for me to retire. I don't want this burden. I was thinking about this. Remember when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee and a great storm came up and was crashing over the railing of the boat and they looked out and there coming across the sea, walking on the water, was the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter yells from the boat, Lord, is that you? (laughs) I don't know what, if you got another answer, what he had done. But Lord, is that you? And if it is, command me to come to you. And Peter gets out of the boat and he starts walking toward the Lord Jesus Christ on water. But it's a storm. Huge storm. And what happened to Peter? He started looking around at the waves. And he began to sink. And Christ reached down and pulled him up. He was preparing to drown. Brothers and sisters, every single one of you, us in this room, is guilty of that. Now, you may try not to admit it today, but I know better. I know that there are times when you stepped out of the boat and it was like, whoa, can you believe what God is doing And the waves crashed around you. And what happened? Blub, 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 blub. I got out of the boat without my life jacket. Paul wasn't like Peter. This is killing Paul. Don't ever kid yourself. You go through the list in chapter 10 where he says, you know, I've been beaten with rods. I've been stoned and left for dead. I've been in trouble in the country. I've been in trouble by the Gentiles. I've been in trouble by the Jews. And my daily concern for the church. I've never in my life met a person who had the passion for the body of Christ like the Apostle Paul. When Paul got out and walked in the storm, He looked up. He didn't look at the storm. He didn't look at the discouragement. He didn't look at the heartache. He didn't look at all the things that were going south. I mean, if you're really honest with yourself, what he he had spent 18 months in Corinth and look how that was turning out. He spent two years in Ephesus and he only got run out of there in a riot. All right. That sounds successful. You know, that's church growth on steroids. Run for your life. And yet it's interesting that there's nothing between verses 13 and 14. How do, how do you get out of the pit of 13 and into the joy of 14? And the one that I know every one of you want to know is, how are you doing so quick? <laughs> you know, I've sunk so many times, I've gotten pretty good at holding my breath. Because <laughs> I know eventually I'll pop back up. Because I'm not done. 
I, I, I was looking at this text and I've really wrestled with this text and, and I look at it and I think, well, it was because Titus came. He, he finally run into Titus in Macedonia. Well, that was before the letter was written. And if you're really true to context of the scripture, he doesn't speak of meeting with Titus until chapter 7. And he says that by the coming of Titus, Paul was comforted. Yeah, I would say after five years of this, I see somebody who's like-minded, I'd be a little comforted. And then to find out the news that Titus gave him was good. You know, that, oh yeah, that's right on, right on, right on. Um, You know, he found out that the Corinthians were sorrowful. There was actually a move in the Corinthian church of repentance. And they had affirmed their love for the Apostle Paul. But you know what's amazing? He don't say that here. It's not until chapter 7. I believe emphatically in my heart that Titus' arrival played no point in the joy of the Apostle Paul in verse 14. I don't believe Titus had anything to do with it. Linsky wrote this, and I quote, The light did dawn when Titus came. And there was joy in the morning, unquote. And you've seen that. You have had Christians who stepped into your life, who have brought the light and the joy of the morning. Titus did give some encouragement. There's no doubt in my mind. Um, His concern for the condition of that church and the response of confronting that church had been positive. I I know if you have ever had the... uh, privilege, and I classify it as a privilege, of confronting a sinning saint. Anybody ever had a positive response? I'm sure it happens. The Bible says it happens. I don't believe Titus's report or Titus's appearance uh, was key to his joy. Because if it was the key to his joy, there's no doubt in my mind the Apostle Paul would have said so. And he does give a report in chapter 7, as I said. See, here's one of the things about Paul. He knew no matter what good happened by the two letters to the Corinthians and the visit of Titus, No matter the good, there was a minority of people in that church who were buying into the deception. And I know that none of us in this room are easily deceived. And it is very difficult for each of us to buy into any deception. But it did happen in Corinth. They were still deceivers in the church. There were still false apostles in the church. And he also knew that there was a tremendous impact on that church 
by an evil culture. And that culture was pounding that church. Now that doesn't happen to us here in Castle Rock. But I will tell you, they do not quit pounding away on you. The church in Corinth had been fickled once, as my grandma used to say. And if they had been fickled once, you know what that means, right? They could be fickled twice. If the whole problem had been solved by the visit of Titus, the two letters... Why does he spend 13 more chapters defending his integrity? Just a question. See, if you're truly honest with yourself, and again, this letter deals with ministry. If you are saved, you're in it. You may not be doing anything, but that still doesn't mean you ain't in it. And there's always cause in the body of Christ to worry, to be disheartened, to wonder, even in light of a good report, what will happen next. If the problems are resolved, he doesn't write 2 Corinthians. They can have a little church woohoo in Macedonia and move on. Now the report that Titus had given was very comforting. I get reports. There's times that I struggle here in this country with Christians and Christian leaders. And then I will receive a report from Pastor Philip or Pastor Paul or Valeri or Bob Provost. And I can just sort of sit back and say, praise be to God. And I'm sure that Titus' report was comforting. And I'm sure that Titus' report brought him a moment of joy, relief. He knew that the church had turned and was back on the right track. And that some had responded Correctly. But you know what I know about the Apostle Paul? That is not where he looked to find his comfort. You ever thought about that? Have you ever watched the church people? They always want to find their comfort in each other. And they're never let down. Right? I had a discussion this week with a, several pastors on... Um, well, you've got to trust the church... And I just smiled and they said, well, don't you trust? I said, no, I'm I'm not that foolish. The church run Jonathan Edwards off. The church run Charles Spurgeon off. Yeah, I'm going to trust them. But you know what? I've never been called to trust the church. I've never been called to trust people. And if I put my joy, my peace in people... It'll never be shattered. So 
So when you think about discouragement, I know none of you are discouraged this day, but tomorrow is coming. When that discouragement, when that heartache runs over you, because it will, how do you get encouraged? Well, if the pastor would just call me. Okay, I've, I've never been accused of encouraging people when I call. <laughs> What's he want? <laughs> you know, you can always look in your church in the moment of your darkest hour and find some faithful folks. You know what? You may even find a majority of faithful folks. And you may even have some in the church who come to you and say, I'm sorry. You may have some in the church who actually repent. But deep in your heart, you know that people can be fickled. And deep in your heart, you know right around the corner... There's yet another disaster coming. And you know one of the things that I've had to learn, that I've learned from the Apostle Paul? You don't want to live on the ups and downs of the response of the people. Okay? So we must go somewhere else to find our deep profound joy and you will find it in your deepest hour of your pain. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. Verse 14, but thanks be to God. He just turned to God. Of course, we all sit here and smile at each other and say, well, yeah, no problem. I'm convinced that the sufferings of this age cannot compare to the glory to come. We know that verse because we give it to everybody who comes to us hurting. (laughs) We don't ever think about it when we're hurting, but I tell you what, it's good for those sad feelings that people need to have. Look them, give them a big hug and say, seek his kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be added unto you. Yeah. You know what? The Apostle Paul, instead of looking at the troubled sea and drowning, as Peter almost did, he lifted his eyes toward the Lord and he and it turned him to a thankful heart. But you know what? I was looking at this and I kept thinking between 13 and 14, what caused him to go from this desperate place To a grateful heart. At this moment, it would be very, very difficult to be thankful for the Corinthian church. Thankful for the difficulties, the heartache that he was going through. But you know what? I've learned there were some things that he was thankful for. And Paul had this tremendous 
ability, this tremendous heart to get lost in those things. I want you to think about that for a second. It is easy for you and I to be in the storm and get lost in the storm. Okay, remember what he said in 1 Corinthians? There is no temptation that has seized you, except that is common to man. Okay, basically, whatever you've gone through, you're in a long list of those who have gone through it, basically. But he says, God is faithful. And he always provides a way out that you may stand under it. You know what happens when we get into temptation trials? What do we focus on? See, I learned a hard way. I need to look for the exit. Instead of looking at the tribulation, I know that God has provided a way out. Where is it? The Apostle Paul would draw upon the things of the Lord and that was what would lift him out of his despair. And if you're really true to the text, you'll realize that he did this extraordinarily quick. See, that's encouragement. I've already showed you the despair, the heartache the Apostle was dealing with over the last couple of weeks. But I need to give you some background. And that's what I want to spend the rest of this message on is the background. Because when I look at this, there's some words that just leap out to me. Because I want to see this man who had no rest in his spirit, had a door open for him in the Lord, and yet was so distressed, he took his leave of it. And immediately jumped to thanks be to God. How in the world do you do that? Some words that jump on me and and just amazing to me. One is fragrance, aroma, and triumph. And I read this and, and I've spent a lot of time reading Paul. And he's not what I would call a foo-foo writer. And I'm sitting there going, what in the world is he talking about fragrance and aroma? I mean, is Paul marketing some kind of cologne? See, Paul draws his encouragement out of a very graphic and historical event. I want you to think about this. If you go to the book of Ephesus, you will read that you're going to put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of truth and, and all the rest of it. And everybody says, he must have been like in the army or something. No. He was actually chained to a Roman soldier who would have been dressed with a breastplate and a belt and a sword and shod for battle and a shield. So when he writes that down, you will find out that the letter to the Ephesians is what is known as a prison letter. And he was chained to this soldier and he's looking at this soldier and he's using that as a graphic illustration of what he's looking at. So he does that on a regular basis. What's he talking about here with flowers and fragrances and aromas and triumphs and, you know, did they have triumphs then? I knew they made triumphs in England a long time ago, but I didn't think that they had them back when he was out. And yet, if you 
study history, you will find out what the backdrop is of what he's saying here. And it all has this focus. Thanks be to God. These words, triumph, aroma, fragrance, are all words that speak of a very unique event. Particularly the word you see there leads us in triumph. Okay? Let me give you a historical background on triumph. Okay? The Romans had a term that was called triumph. It's historical. A triumph was when a Roman, when, when, when the Roman government and all of the people of Rome honored a great general. It was called a triumph. And the honor bestowed on this victorious Roman general had to meet some very stringent conditions. It was not given flippantly. Okay, it's, it's like the Medal of Honor. All right? There is a lot of conditions that have to be met for the Medal of Honor. It has to be valor above and beyond the call of duty. Before this general could win this, an interesting concept, especially in light of today, the general must have been the actual commander-in-chief of all the troops in the field. The campaign must have been completely finished. And what I mean by completely finished is that the region of the conflict is completely pacified. What I mean by completely pacified is there's no need for Roman troops to be there. It's an interesting concept. And, of course, the victorious Roman troops had to be brought home. There's no need for them. The region is completely secure. But there's some other things that have to take place for a general to receive a triumph. There must be at least 5,000 enemy fallen in the engagement. It must be a positive extension of the territory of the kingdom. Okay, so when the troops pulled out, this is now a Roman province. Period. Okay. <clears throat> it cannot be the stopping of a disaster. Of an attack repelled. That's not what they're talking about. It has to be conquest. Okay? A complete annihilation of the adversary. Alright? It also has to be victory over a foreign enemy. Can't, can't be a civil war or, or putting down an uprising. 
This is a conquest. So now and then, once in a lifetime, a general might have had that kind of triumph given to him in honor. Titus Vespasian. Do you know him? He obliterated Jerusalem in 70 AD. He received a triumph when he got back to Rome because there was no need for Roman soldiers to be left in Israel anymore. It was that complete of an annihilation. So, if a general receives this triumph, then there would be a parade. So you could literally put this phrase here, leads us in capital T, triumph. Because it'd be a parade. And this would be a big parade. All right? It would be through the streets of Rome. And Rome was first known for its very wide boulevards. And it would go through all the streets and wind around throughout the city. The whole city would shut down and it would end at the capital. And there there would be an offering made unto the gods for this great, massive victory. Now think about this for a second. This big parade in the front were all the state officials. It sounds like us, doesn't it? The Senate. The Senate of Rome would lead the parade. And then immediately following the state officials were the trumpeters. They'd be blowing the horn in victory. Horns in victory. Then right behind the trumpeters was the military garrison who had been under the general. And they got to carry all the spoils of their conquerors. All the wealth, all the treasures they carried in wagons and carts on their shoulders, uh, great boxes of gold and anything that they had taken by defeating this enemy. And then behind the soldiers was a white bull. This white bull would be offered as a blood sacrifice to Jupiter once they arrived at the capital. Then would come behind the white bull the prisoners in chains headed to prison and to death. They'd either be sold as slaves or they would be put into the Colosseum and made sport of. Behind the prisoners would be the priest. And the priest would carry a long pole usually several hundred of them. And it'd have three chains coming off of it and a large basket, large, I'm, I'm talking about that big around, full of incense burning. Censers. If you go and see an Orthodox church, you'll see them moving them around. I was in an Orthodox church in St. Petersburg and uh, the guy was walking around with this, <laughs> looked like it was on fire, but it just smoke pouring out of this thing with incense. And I asked, What's that for? And they said, it keeps away evil. Okay, <laughs> if you say so. But this, I mean, and I mean, it was like a cloud of smoke everywhere. You think about it for a second. What would you do with a hundred priests carrying these things around? 
Okay? The smoke and smell of incense would fill the air. And all along the boulevards of this triumph, women would be several rows deep and they would have flower garlands and they would cast them, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of these flowers. The, uh, speaking of Vespasians, Flavius Josephus said that the flowers that they walked through were several feet thick. And it was flower petals and garlands. And if you've ever been around flowers and garlands like that, and you step on them, what, do, what happens to them? The odor becomes stronger and stronger as you crush it. So you've got all of this incense and you've got all these flowers with all of these, the, the horse soldiers' hooves of their horses trampling the flowers and the soldiers trampling the flowers and the prisoners trampling the flowers. And you've got all of this incense burning so the whole air, the whole city would literally smell of incense and these crushed flowers. And all the homes along the boulevards would light incense to honor the gods in gratitude for this great successful general. Then behind the priest would come a single chariot drawn by four horses pulling the general. He would have a purple toga on that was embroidered with golden stars. Then he'd have a purple robe over it and it would be embroidered with gold palm leaves. And in his one hand, he would steer the horses. In his other hand, he would carry an ivory scepter with a gold eagle on top of it, speaking of Rome. And all along the boulevard, the people would cry aloud, Triumph! 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 That's the picture that's in Paul's mind when he says, thanks be to God. And that is what contrasts between the gloom that is in his heart and the joy of whose army he's marching in. He goes from despair of what is happening in Corinth and the Corinthian situation to the exuberance of marching in the triumph parade of Jesus Christ. And he does it, boom! Just like that. And that's why you see fragrance and aroma. Because Paul says, no matter what's going on around me, we win. And there will be a great exaltation when we stroll through the streets of heaven in front of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Truth of the matter is, from a human viewpoint, he looks like he's pretty much been defeated. <laughs> if you're really honest, he doesn't look like a conquering hero, he doesn't look successful. 
But when you turn from pain of failures and difficulties of ministry in this life, and you look at the triumph, calling, and privilege to which you have been called, then you get your perspective back. And Paul says, thanks be to God. Paul says, I see all of this and it is ripping my soul out. Thanks be to God. Do you really understand right now? And I'm going to close just this thought. You don't have to answer me or anything. Do you really understand the privilege of being led by a sovereign God? Paul did. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the picture you've given us in the Apostle Paul. And Father, as we move through this text slowly and surely, let us understand this privilege of this great celebration of victory, of being a part of the army of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to understand the sweet aroma of victory in Christ, to understand no matter what is going on around us, no matter what is discouraging us, no matter what is hurting us, no matter what is overwhelming us, that we are partakers of the single greatest victory ever known in all of creation. Thank you for my brother Paul. Knowing he could be discouraged, despairing, depressed, and yet could stop and say, thanks be to you. Christ leads us in victory. In Christ's name, amen.